I solicited your prayers uh, here this morning, uh, my brothers and sisters. This message that we're going to be getting this morning is something that I know the Lord planted into my heart and into my spirit. I have no doubts about it. Um, but it's not a typical message. It's not a typical sermon. Uh, my friends, Andrell and Tanya, always tease me and say, be sure to use your preacher voice. Uh, but there may not be much of a preaching voice today because it's imperative that you receive this word in a manner that will impact you. And I'm not trying to impress anybody, but I do want everyone in here to be impacted. Today, we're going to look at a subject matter that I'm not certain if all of us have really understood. It's something that we all claim something that we all claim to be, but I'm not sure that all of us understand the ramifications of what it really means to be a Christian. And today, we're going to look at some stuff and look at uh, some material from the Scripture, some material outside of the Scripture to show us what God wants us to know. If I were to ask you the question, what is water? I'm more than sure that, that there are many of you who have taken a science class. You would say water is an inorganic compound that at room temperature is odorless, is tasteless, uh, and near colorless except it has a hint or a hue of blue. And if I were to ask you why is it water, you would say, well, it's because it has a chemical makeup of H2O, two hydrogen atoms, and one oxygen atom. So you would know what water is, and you would know why it's water. Changing gears, if I were to ask you a simple question, do you love your mother? Many of us in here because I don't know many people who do not know or do not love their mothers, many of us would say, oh, most certainly I love my mother. And when I ask the question, why do you love your mom? You would say, well, because she nurtured me. She taught me some essentials in life. She carried me in her womb. She chose to keep me. I most certainly love my mother. But if I turn the tables and I ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And why are you a Christian? I dare say that many of us, under the sound of my voice, would struggle with answering what it is that a Christian claims to be and what you as a Christian are supposed to do. A lot of us say we're Christians because that's just the type of world that we're in, the environment, the nation of, of America. 70% of Americans claim that they are Christians. But I dare say far less are not. They're not Christians. And we need to understand some things about what it really means to be a Christian because the world is changing and shifting right under our feet. And if we're not careful... We can be rocked 
from the very thing that we say we believe. And so today, my brothers and sisters, I'd like for us, amongst other things, I'd like for us to look at the legitimacy of Jesus and the cross. Look at the legitimacy of Jesus and the cross. Now, this, this message comes to you in two ways. We've got half of it is going to be on the screen. The other half you should have in an outline. If you don't have an outline, the ushers, we would gladly give you uh, one if they still have some. So you just simply raise your hand. They'll pass you out one because you definitely need it. Um, and, and I want you to take this home and look over it and follow through on your own time as well. But we're not going to have the outline just right now, but we're going to get to it in, in, in a few moments. Now, the whole line and argument of, of, of the legitimacy of Jesus Christ comes from the discipline or practice of something that's called apologetics. Now, I know apologetics sounds a whole lot like apology, but the two are not synonymous. An apology is saying that I'm sorry for something, but the study and practice of apologetics is nothing like that. It is defending what you say you believe. And so apologetics is the following three things. It's knowing what you believe, it's knowing why you believe it, and it's being able to share why your beliefs are reasonable. It's knowing what you believe, it's knowing why you believe it, and being able to share why your beliefs are reasonable in the first place. Now, why is this important? Well, Pastor Adam says something on Easter Sunday that I will not forget. And it really solidified the fact that this is something that I would speak on today. Pastor Adam says that you can trust without knowing why you trust. Let that sink in. You can trust without knowing why you trust. Many of us trust that when we get inside of our cars, when we put the key into the ignition or push the button, the engine will suddenly rev up. It will crank up. We trust it. But I guarantee you, many of us in this room does not know how an engine works. We don't know why it does what it does. We only know that it does. But we cannot treat our Christian faith like we do the cars that we have in our driveways. It is imperative and incumbent upon us that we would know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to know the merits of the Christian faith. Now, this, this, this whole argument of apologetics comes from and it stems from one root passage of Scripture, one main passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And in that chapter, Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks of you the reason of the hope that is in you in weakness and fear. And what he is trying to help us to understand here, a few things, essential things here. He says, number one, it's important that we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. And that is to acknowledge him as holy. And not only are we to acknowledge him as holy, but the message Bible tells us that we need to bring our hearts to attention. Because many of us in our Christian faith have been sleep on the job. And he tells us that we need to come and bring ourselves to attention because there are a lot of people who have questions that you as a Christian are supposed to be able to answer. I want you to understand something about questions. 
You know, a lot of us say we don't question God and you shouldn't question your faith and you shouldn't question this. But I would argue the different. Now, I would say, now, you, you don't argue with God, but it's okay to question certain things in our faith. It's okay to want to know and ask the question, okay, so why is this? And, and, and I get that because my, my, my former um, youth pastor back in 19, um, shared, shared, shared with us, he, he says, it's not questions that pose the problem, it's the unprocessed questions that become problematic. It's okay for you as a Christian, it's okay for me as a Christian to have questions about my Christian faith, but the problem comes in when those questions are unprocessed, when no one comes and, be, and is able to give us exactly what that means, what the Scripture means. And so he says we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, and then he says, secondly, we are to be ready. You don't know that's a constant theme throughout the Bible from the Old Testament to the New. Be ready and get ready. And he tells us what we are to get ready for. He says that we are to be ready to, here it is, give an answer. That word answer comes from the Greek word apologia, where we get our word apologetics, which means to defend. So we are to always give an answer in a manner that we can defend our faith. Now, mind you, he did not say fight over it. He did not say argue over it. He just simply said defend it. And we're going to show you how to do that. So sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Bring your heart to attention. Be ready always to give an answer. And then he tells us how to do it in meekness and in fear. So in other words, we are not to be haughty when we are talking and communicating to people about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The worst thing you could do to an unbeliever is to share with that person that, oh, man, because, just, oh, you, you're not saved? Oh, you're going straight to hell. You're going to hell. That's just where you're going. You can look forward to it. That's the worst thing that you could do. And God never tells us that we are to approach people like that. Now, truth be told, if they die without Christ inside of their heart, yeah, sure, we know what's going to happen. But the worst way that you can try to evangelize to a person is to tell them that they're going to hell. Worst thing you could do. There are two types of unbelievers um, that we typically deal with. There is the cynic and the skeptic. The cynic and the skeptic. Now, the skeptic is someone who is just that. He or she is skeptical. They have questions that have been unprocessed. And you can talk to a skeptic with the mindset of trying to help encourage him or her to change how they feel about the word of God. But then you have the cynic. And the cynic is somebody who is some person that does not, who could care less about what the word of God says. They are already convinced in their minds that, you know, Jesus is not Lord. There is no God. I'm an atheist till I die. And you have, you know, there's nothing you can say or do that's going to change that. Now, of the two, which one do you think you should spend the most time with? The cynic or the skeptic? The skeptic. The skeptic. Because the cynic is a waste of your time. So if a person is adamant about not believing in God, not believing, you say, okay, I respect you, I respect your beliefs, I believe otherwise, and you move on. But the person who has questions, you need to spend all the time in the world with them until those questions are settled.
So we can, we're going to get down to the question, is my faith in Jesus legit? Is my faith in Jesus legit or is it all a hoax? Is it all a hoax? And, and you say, well, I don't know if you should ask that question. Well, do you remember John the Baptist? Jesus said of John the Baptist, there is no greater man of a woman that's born of a woman than that of John the Baptist. And guess what? John the Baptist asked questions. Are you the Christ or should we look for another? This man had questions. It's okay for you to have questions. Make sure they are not unprocessed. I'm going to go through um, something that, that we need to look at. We're going to, we're going to argue uh, the legitimacy of the Bible. Um, and it's important for us to understand two things about the Bible. The Bible is the historical record of the move of God on earth. And the Bible is also has proven itself to be historically accurate and reliable. Now, how many of you have your Bibles with you today? Say amen. amen. All right. You, you, okay, let me do that again. If you, if you have a Bible with you, hard copy or electronic copy, you know, do, do you have a Bible? Say amen. amen. All right. Well, you can put it up. That's what the skeptic is going to say. That's what the cynic may say. Put that up. I don't need that. How are you going to tell me about God using the only reference there is about God? How are you going to use the Bible? Because that's what you Christians do. You, you, that's all you have is the Bible. And so they say, well, the Bible is not legit. It's, it's, it's something that, you know, uh, it's a fairy tale. It's a figment of imagination. It's, people just had, you know, a lot of time on their hand. They wrote stuff to try to encourage people and build people up, but it's a false hope. But is that true? And we're going to discover how and why that's not true. I want to look, before we really get into the heart and meat of things, it's important for us to establish the fact that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy as a historical document, as well as a divine revelation of God. Now, this is going to take a little time for me to build, but I want you to hang in there. Don't get lost, because I need you to see this. And, and, and if you do, uh, you know, use, use your notes, get this CD or DVD, and I would encourage everybody to do that, because this is something that I believe that can help establish your faith, help build your faith. So let's, I want to look at, at, at one important, very important Bible prophecy that God gave us, and I want to see the prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy. And it's going to take a little time for us to build this. Here we are. We're going to prove that the Bible is both historical and divine. God told the nation of Israel something very important. He, he says, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you because of your actions. But then later on, he says, I'm going to build you back up. He says, one, I'm going to destroy you because of the actions. Number two, I'm going to build you back up. And there are three, three fundamental reasons why God did that. There are three fundamental reasons why the nation of Israel was disbanded as a nation and dispersed and even lost their status as a nation. Here are those reasons. Number one, they were disobedient to the laws of God. Number two, they worshiped and went whoring after other gods. They were unfaithful. And then the third reason why, if you're taking notes, is that they were unrepentant. Three things. They were disobedient to the laws of God. They were unfaithful to the God who created them. 
And they were so blatant about their unfaithfulness that they were also unrepentant about being unfaithful. And God said, as a result of your actions, I'm going to remove you from your land. And I'm going to show you how he he does this. So in Zechariah, in Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7, I'm going to read all, everything's going to be in the NIV for us today. Zechariah prophesies through the Lord, he says, Awake, sword, against my shepherd and against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little one. Look at that prophecy. That's a lot that's going on in there. He says, awake sword against my shepherd, the man who is close to me, who is close to God. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And not only that, but I will turn my own hand against the little ones or the nation of Israel. Now, Jesus says in John 10 and 11, because we have to ask the question, who is the shepherd? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, what you may not understand about that is that that word good is really a a deity reference. Jesus, because you hear people that say Jesus never said that he was God. He never said that. Oh, yes, he did. He did say that he did make a God claim. And when he calls himself good, he's making that deity claim. How do you say that? Because in Mark chapter 10, that was a rich young ruler who came running to the Lord Jesus. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus replied, there is none good but God. Now, he's not saying that he himself is not good, but what he's simply saying is, you don't know me like that. You don't know me well enough to call me good. And here's how I know you don't. Go and sell all your possessions and take up your mantle and come and follow me. And the Bible says that the rich man went away sadly because he had a great amount of wealth. Jesus says, you don't have the authority to call me good because you don't walk and worship me as a good father. But not only that, in John chapter 8, some of the Jews accused Jesus of being demonically uh, um, possessed. And Jesus says, no, I'm not demon possessed. He says, in fact, Abraham saw my my birth and and, and worshiped me. And, and, And the people said, what? He said, man, you're not even 50 years old. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That's a deity claim. Why? Because that took the people back to the mind of Moses. When Moses asked God, he says, God, who should I say sent me? And God replied to Moses, stop shaking, stop quivering, tell him I am that I am sent you. And when Jesus stepped on the scene, Jesus says, I am. And they were ready to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am Lord. Bible goes on. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said, he told them, he told his disciples, this very night you will fall away on account of me for it is written, watch what he says, I will strike the shepherd." And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, notice what Jesus did. Jesus used the exact 
referenced the exact scripture that God said and gave to Zechariah. And what did he say? Awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then he says, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So Jesus says to his disciples, you know, uh, on account of me, you're going to fall away. Because it is written, once the shepherd is struck, then the sheep will scatter. Now, that is uh, uh, called the law of double fulfillment. Because what Jesus here is doing is he's saying immediately I'm addressing you, but long term I'm addressing the lost sheep of Israel. Immediately you're going to fall away, but because the lost sheep of Israel are going to strike me and kill me, they too shall be scattered and God's hand will be against them. But that's not the end of the story. Because in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, he prophesies something about that. And we're going to get there in, in, in just a minute. Now, Jesus says the, the, I was, the, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. And God also said that I'm going to turn my hand uh, against those who are going to strike my shepherd. That all began to happen. It's called the Jewish diaspora. And what happened in the Jewish diaspora, and it sounds like what it is, the people were dispersed. They were taken away from their land. And we already said why it happened, because they were disobedient to God, they were unfaithful to God, and they were unrepentant over their actions. And so God says, I'm going to remove you from the land. Now, it did not begin with Jesus, the Jewish diaspora, but it, 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 it propelled, it got intense under Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. The Jewish diaspora began with the invasion of Israel. In, a, in 722 BC, the Assyrian army marched in on Israel and they, and they laid siege on them and they took some of the people as exiles, diaspora. But not only that, Babylon came in in 597 BC and you already know who that was, King Nebuchadnezzar. And then after Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire comes into place under Cyrus. And then after Cyrus comes Greece, and that's Alexander the Great, and he comes in in 32 B.C. And when these kingdoms come and lay siege on the land, the people would often either they would be dispersed or they would leave themselves because the oppressors were too strong. And the only one that really had some favor really towards them actually was Medo-Persia and Cyrus. Cyrus was the only one that really, really had a heart for the people. But other than that, they were dispersed and dismantled bit by bit. Let me show you how. Because in the Jewish diaspora continues under the siege of Rome. Rome comes into play in 63 B.C. And about 30 or 33 A.D., Jesus Christ is killed. Now, remember the prophecy. Once the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. Jesus told the people that I'm telling you, he told his, his disciples this, when, uh, according about the temple. He says, when you see this, this great marvel, he says, I'm telling you, the day is coming when one, not one brick will be stacked upon each other. And 40 years later, in 70 A.D., Rome marches in on Jerusalem and they ransack Jerusalem and they destroy the, the temple to the degree that no brick was laid on top of the other. 
Why did that happen? Because God had prophesied that when you strike my shepherd, I will lay my hand on you and you will be dispersed as a people. So the Jews were now scattered. After them came Persia and Caliph Omar and the Crusaders and Saladin and many others who came in ransacking Jerusalem and the people were dispersed little by little, little by little. That's not the end of the story. Because Isaiah says something important. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 through 12, Isaiah says, In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time, like he did in Egypt when he removed them from Egypt, a second time and will bring the remnant of his people back. Those who remain in Assyria, which is Persia, in northern Egypt, southern Egypt, Ethiopia, Alam, which is Iran, in Babylonia, which is Iraq, Hamath, which is Syria, and all the coastlands. And here it is, guys. He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. And then he says something else. Isaiah 66, and this completes the prophecy. Here it is. He says, before she went into labor, he's talking about Israel. Before she went into labor, she had a baby. Now, who has a baby before they go into labor? The birth pains before the birth pains hit she delivers a son has anyone seen anything like this a country born in a day a nation born in a flash but zion was barely in labor when she had her babies do i open the womb and do not deliver a baby do i the one who delivers babies shut up the womb god asked and brothers and sisters that prophecy came into fulfillment In 1948, because in 1948, something happened in world history that has never, ever happened before. In 1948, Israel, in the wink of an eye, became a nation again, just like God said. The nation of Israel raised their flag for the first time after 2,000 years of being pillaged and destroyed and dispersed, they came in overnight by the hand of the United Nations and and the United States, and they raised their flag for the first time, and God made that prophecy over 2,900 years before. Here's my question. Can the Bible be trusted? Amen. Now, still, I don't like that argument. That's what the cynic says. Mm. Okay, I hear you, but you know, it's got, but still, are there other people who wrote about Jesus are Christians? And so, of course, the answer to that is yes. There is a Jewish historian named Josephus. Now, Josephus was not a Christian, he was a Jewish historian, not a Christian. And here's what he said he lived between 37 AD and 100 AD. He says, At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. This sounds like something in Scripture. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. 
Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah. Again, he's not a Christian, so he's using non-Christian language. He, perhaps he was the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had reporting wonders. And the tribe of Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. Dead people don't make disciples. Okay. There are more. You say, okay, that's just one reference. No, there are more. Plinius II lived in 23 to 79 AD. He was a Roman author and naval and army commander. This guy was something else. Because what he would do is he would go, he would approach you, and he would say, now, are you a Christian? He would give you the opportunity to say that I'm not. But he wrote that if they still persisted on being a Christian, he executed them. So they had to let us know that they must have persisted on being a Christian because he executed some. So all the way back then, the, 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 the Christian, the Christian believers, Jewish and otherwise, were making their claim that, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord and I'm willing to die for it. But not only Plinius Secondus, you have Cornelius uh, Tacitus. He was a Roman senator and historian. You've got Gaius Tranquillus. He was a Roman secretary and historian. Then you have Lucian, who was a Greek satirist. Now, look at all, all these guys. Now, they, you know, one, one says was an author. The other one was a historian. The, another one was a historian. And the other one was a Greek satirist. It means he wrote in satire. So these are people who made a practice of writing. So they recorded what they knew and what they had heard about Jesus Christ. All right. Um, Now, let's turn over now and look at the uniqueness of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. And in the minutes that we have left, I want to answer those questions. You know, are there really contradictions? Because we, we, we hear all the time, the, the Bible is just full of contradictions. It says one thing over here, it says something else over here. So we need to investigate that claim to find out if that's true or not. Because I have to confess, when you read the Bible, there are many apparent contradictions. And I, wrote, I said the word apparent. Let me show you how. Now, you can look at your, at your outline, and in case we don't, we're going to finish it uh, uh, prayerfully. Um, This outline is for you to take home and and digest. Now, concerning the crucifixion of Christ and these apparent contradictions, Matthew, Mark, and John say that the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus, but Luke doesn't mention it at all. Somebody say, "Uh uh-oh. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that there was a man named Simon of Cyrene who helped Jesus carry the cross, but only Mark gives us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And John, the Gospel of John, doesn't mention him at all. Somebody say, "Uh uh-oh, contradictions. The seven sayings on the cross, we're very familiar with those. In a lot of churches during the Easter season, you have, or right, right on Good Friday, you have a minister that comes up, or, or several ministers, and they go through the seven sayings on the cross. Well, how many of y'all understand that the seven sayings on the cross are pieced together? They are not in one book. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's in Luke. 
You will be with me in paradise. That's in Luke. Woman, behold your son. Behold thy mother. That's in John. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? That's in Matthew and in Mark. I thirst. That's in John. It is finished. That's in John. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's in Luke. Somebody say, "Uh uh-oh. Because every time you hear the seven sayings of of Christ, you, you probably automatically assume that it comes from a passage of Scripture or that all of the the text would include every one of these seven sayings. But that's not the case. Here, here we go. Keep, keep moving. All four of the Gospels say that he was crucified next to others, but only Luke's account gives us the conversation that Jesus had with the thief on the right. On Barabbas, Matthew chapter 27, the chief priest uh, persuaded the crowd to ask Barabbas to have Jesus executed. Mark 15, the priest encouraged the crowd to have uh, um, Barabbas released. Luke chapter 23, the whole crowd shouted, release Barabbas. In John 18, they shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. All these different accounts saying that give us Barabbas over Jesus, but it's not saying it the exact same way. On the death of Jesus... Matthew 27, and when he had cried out with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Mark 15, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Luke 23, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. John 19, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Four different accounts of the same thing. Four different accounts. They are not saying the exact same thing. Somebody say, oh, oh. So what do we do about these variances? What do we do about these varying accounts? Because now your heart ought to be pumping. You know what, uh, Brother Craig, you're right. I had never paid attention to that. The, the Bible is not, doesn't seem to be consistent in everything that it's saying. Or does it? That's a fine book uh, by a man by the name of John Wallace who in his beginning, was, was, was an atheist. And John Wallace was an atheist, but he was also a cold case detective. And this cold case detective said, I've played around with atheism long enough. I, I, I've, I've never believed in the claims of Christ, but now I'm going to attach what I know as a cold case detective to what Jesus says and what happened in the Bible. And I'm going to sift through those things and I'm going to see if it's really what it says it is. And whatever the truth is, the chips are going to lie where they lie. This man, John Waters, began as an atheist and he started investigating the claims of Christ. And when he got down to those contradictions, as we call it, or apparent contradictions, a funny thing happens. What we would call a contradiction, he would say, no, that's a compliment. Here's how. If, 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 if Deacon Charles, uh, Sierra, uh, and, and, and uh, Brother Vincent went outside, and I was to ask them, hey, listen, what do you see when you go outside? And if uh, all three of them, if Brother Charles, 
if, if, if Sierra and Brother Vincent go out and say, if, if Brother Charles says, I see, you know, uh, three lights, one pole, and some grass. And if Sierra goes outside and says, I see three lights, one pole, and some grass. And if Vincent goes out and says, I see three lights, one pole, and some grass, you and I may look at that as being a consistency that that is validated, but a cold case detective would immediately usher that as a lie. Here's why. There is no way, there is no possible way for you and for me, for any of us, to see the same thing and say the same thing the same way. None of us speak in terms of robots. And so whenever I go outside, I may say, hey, I see the, the sun and the moon. But you may go outside and say, I see the street lights and the lamp on, on the side and some gum in the grass. And another person may go outside and say, I see this car that's outside and I see the neighbor's house. But there are some things that are going to be all in common. And so these things are not contradictions at all. They're actually compliments. And what it does is it validates the fact that the disciples saw what they said they saw. That is vitally important, brothers and sisters. Because when people tell you that there are contradictions in the Bible, you may ask them, how so? Because they say, well, it says this, it says this, and then you explain to them that, no, those are not contradictions. Those are compliments. Because what happens is, in the Bible, uh, uh, you see the infinite wisdom of God? God God knew that we would have questions like this. And God says, you know what, I'm going to implement a system where I have, you know, uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and, and John. Three of them are called the Synoptic Gospels, and then you got John. But they're going to come in. I'm going to allow them to see the same things, but I'm going to have them to report what they saw in their own language. They never conferred with each other. They never visited with each other. They wrote these in separate times. But God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that we would have questions and doubts about these things. And so he came up with the system of having the Gospels, the four Gospels of Jesus Christ. And that was so wise of him to do it. So wise of him to do it. Now, people who are um, of different faiths, let's say, let's say Muslims, Islamic faith. The Islamic faith can never be fact-checked like the Christian faith. Why? Because one person claims to have written the Quran. Everything within the, per- in, in the Quran came from one person. That person was Muhammad. So who's to come and say, did he see what he said he saw? Did God reveal to him the things that he said? It's, you're unable to do that. So when you're in the presence of somebody who wants to make that argument that, hey, there, there are a lot of gods, there are a lot of different sayings, and a lot of different things, but you tell them no, but have any of them been substantiated and verified like the Gospels of Jesus Christ? And you go through it and show them how to do it. So what, what are the facts of the story? You, you see all of these varying things, but honestly, the background or the facts are saying the same thing. What are the facts? Barabbas was released in exchange for Jesus for the purpose of being executed. That's what all of them have said in different ways. Jesus had help carrying the cross. And the guy that helped him was, was named was Simon of Cyrene. That's a fact. He was crucified next to criminals. That's a fact. And then according to the scripture, Jesus stopped breathing 
and he died. That's a fact. Different accounts saying the same thing in different ways. It's apologetics. This is how you defend your faith. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus actually die? Did he actually die? Well, again, the Quran, written by Muhammad, mind you, the Quran was written seven centuries later after the Bible. I like to have my sources a whole lot closer. That's 700 years. I don't trust that. 700 years later, Muhammad writes and says that it only appeared that Jesus died, that he didn't actually die. And they may have gotten away with that, except for one major thing. You're probably not going to believe what I'm about to say. Medical science proved otherwise. When they applied the medical science to this, and I'm going to show you the article in a minute, it's going to show you something. Now, here's what the medical science doesn't support. It said, number one, Jesus' body was shredded during the scourging and ripping of his skin. His body was shredded, not cut, not lanced, shredded apart. When, that, when those whips and bars and things came across him and the cat of nine tails with those metal tips and different things, it shredded through the sinews and through the muscles and through all of those things in Jesus' body. Isaiah records that he was marred and disfigured beyond any man. So in other words, at one point, you would have been able to identify him as Jesus. But by the time they got through scourging him and beating him, you would not have been able to identify him. We know that that could happen because uh, forgive me for bringing up this awful scene. But if any of you recall history, the story of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a you know, nice looking young man. And, and this man um, was accused of, of whistling at a woman of another race. And. Uh, men went to his grandfather's house, snatched him up out of his house. They beat him within an inch of his life, cut off some things, and finally shot this man. And, they, and this, this, this was just a kid. He was a teenager for whistling. They shot him, and, and, and of course he died because they shot him in the head, and they left him by a ravine, by, by some water. Well, they had to discover the body. And by the time the body was discovered, this young man's body was so marred and so disfigured that the only way his mom could identify him was from a ring that he wore. It is possible to be beaten and scourged beyond recognition. Jesus was. The nails were approximately five to seven inches and would have gone right through his muscles and tendons, puncturing the ulnar artery in his wrist. Jesus literally bled out. His breathing was immensely painful because being fastened to the tree, Jesus' lungs were locked in an inhale position, which made it almost impossible for him to exhale. So Jesus died slowly by suffocation. And then lastly, blood and water, the Bible says, came out of his lungs because he was, he was pierced and uh, uh, those cavities were filled with fluid. So when, when that Roman soldier came and they said, look, go and see if, if he's actually dead, and they, and, and they speared him, the Bible says that blood and water came out. And that's very significant because his part imploded. 
And within his body, he had all these fluids that were building up in different places in, his, in the cavities of his body. Now, I, I'm sure KD can explain that better than I can. But when he was pierced, all those fluids and that blood and water shot out, which proved that Jesus Christ died. Here it is. You don't take my, 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 my word for it? Fine. I bet you'll take this one. The Journal of the American Medical Association. This is top dog. This is what they wrote. On the physical death of Jesus, clearly the weight of the medical and historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. That's powerful. Because now they can't just say, oh, you Christians say that he died. No, the doctors said he died. That's amazing. That's amazing. Right? So now, let's turn to the resurrection of Christ. Is all this is on your outline. The resurrection of Christ. This is the most significant event in history. A man claiming that he was God, that he would die and yet rise again three days later. I'm going to show you something here, and you're going to probably be, be amazed, and I, I, want my, I want the ladies in the house to, to really get this. Number one, the first line of, of evidence we see is that all four of the Gospels record that women discovered the empty tomb. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all discover that the women discovered the empty tomb. You say, okay, that's nice. Why is that important? Here's why. In that time and era, women were not received as credible witnesses. And so that's huge that if they are not received as credible witnesses, why would the gospel writers include that? But what they decided to do is they decided to write what they saw, write what they knew, and just let the chips fall where they may. Women actually saw it. Why? Because the men were running scared. The men were gone. They left Jesus at the cross. Holla. I'm gone. I, I hear you. I love you. Know. And Jesus said it. Y'all going to be scattered all over. But you know women have bravery, don't you? And those ladies came in. And, and they, they were going to attend to his body and realize that the body of Christ had already been resurrected or, or, or wasn't there. Now, you, you say that, that, that is significant, but I'm going to tell you something else that's, that's, that's significant. God knows that women for the longest, st- and still do in some places, are regarded as second-class citizens. God says, not only am I going to raise my son, but I'm going to validate you as a woman. That's powerful. God loves you, ladies. You're not second-rate, second-class citizens. And God proved it by allowing you to be the first witnesses to see the empty tomb. Amen. Matthew 28, 1 through 6, Mark 16, 1 through 6, Luke 24, 1 and 2, John 20, 1 through 2, all validate that women saw it. Now, what happened to his body? What happened? Well, you know, ask the question, did the disciples take it? Well, did you, you just heard me, right? 
They, no, they probably didn't. He, let's see what the Bible says about that. Matthew 26. You can pull it up for me. Matthew 26, 27, excuse me. Matthew 27, verse 62 through 66. And here's how it reads. The next day, on the, the, the one, excuse me, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he, Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise up again. So give order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, who? His disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And he said, this is so strong that this last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate says, take a guard. Go and make the tomb secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure two ways, by putting a seal on the tomb and posting a guard. Now, how can a group of 11 scared guys go and, and take a body from a sealed tomb that's also guarded? They couldn't and they wouldn't. They were scared and they physically would not have been able to do so. Because that stone was huge and it was sealed. And not only that, if, if they had moved that, that, that stone, if they had some kind of, somebody would have seen that. It would have been discovered. Um, they say, well, you know, the, the body was just, just taken, they took it and, and hidden. Well, guess what? Israel, geographically, is about the size of New Jersey. New Jersey is the fifth smallest state in, the, in all the United States. There's no way that 11 scared men could hide a body from the military might of Rome as well as the securities of Israel. It just could not have happened. Well, did the Roman soldiers or the Jewish leaders take the body? You got to ask yourself, why? Why would they do that? Rome was doing their very best to keep an uprising from starting. So if the soldiers of Rome had removed that body after Pilate told them to seal it and stand guard by it, guess what would have happened with those Roman soldiers? They would have been killed on the spot. They would have been executed. And we know that the Jewish leaders didn't do it because if they had done it, they would have said, oh, he's not, he's not alive. Here's the body. Here's the body. But you tell me that, again, uh, the, uh, um, a country the size of New Jersey, you, you've got 11 men, because Judas is already dead. These 11 guys, some kind of way, muster up together and take a body and hide it? How can you hide a decomposing body? It would have been smelling. Somebody would have seen it. People saw the resurrected Jesus, guys. And Paul sums it up very nicely. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 6 reads this way. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I've passed on to you as of first importance. 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of which are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He then appeared to James, who was his brother, and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as of one abnormally born. The resurrected Jesus Christ was seen. They like to have a theory that, no, these people just hallucinated. 500 people hallucinated? What kind of drug is that? 500? There is no medical record or proof, no science whatsoever that, that can hold up on a weight that there's a such thing as mass hallucination. 500 people saw him, the apostles saw him, women saw him. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Lastly, but not leastly, people don't willingly die for a lie. Think about that. You, you may die and what you may believe may be a lie, but you don't willingly die for for a lie. You don't do that. I may ask uh, Brother Andrea to, to, you know, to, to back me up and lie for something, but if the police come to him and say, hey, listen, man, you know, you, you're getting ready to go to jail and possibly executed, but before they say executed, he's going to have my name all over. <laughs> yep, he did it. I promise you he is. It, it, th- that's how it works. Nobody, nobody, nobody willingly dies for a lie. You say, well, why is that important? Look at what the list says about what happened to the disciples. And again, this is extra biblical accounts. So these are historians who wrote what happened to these disciples. Bartholomew beheaded. James, the son of Alphaeus, beaten and stoned and clubbed to death. Now put the sources down here so, so you can see it. Not making this up. Andrew's martyrdom. He was bound but not nailed to the cross, but he still died by way of the cross. It's believed that Peter was, cross, was crucified upside down. Judas of Iscariot was not a martyr because, you know, he, he killed himself. John was the only person that was believed to have lived and, and, and died of natural causes. Thomas was killed with a spear. James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Philip was crucified. Matthew was killed with a spear. Jude was crucified. Simon was crucified. These men would never have died. Not, not 11 or 12 guys died on a lie. Not possible. That's not reasonably sound. And if you're here today, you need to understand these things. Because there's a group of people who are out there who are trying to persuade you and your children that the whole Christian faith is just a lie. But you've got to be able to reasonably defend the faith of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. Say it with me. He died, he was buried, and rose again on the third day. That is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel meaning truth. These are not claims, these are facts. I know this is not a typical message, but you needed to hear it. What do we get from this? Four things and we're done. Number one, our points to ponder, and it's on your outline. 
We know that Jesus died. We know that Israel nor Rome was able to produce a body. Small little Israel. We know that people saw the resurrected Jesus. We know that the disciples went from weakness and running before the cross to boldness and willingness to die, being fully convinced that they had seen, eaten, and interacted with the risen Savior. This is all the time that I had to to, to put into There's so much more, brothers and sisters. There's so much more. All you have to do is open up that word and be willing to study for yourself. 